Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. Welcome to another episode of Unboard. I'm delighted to once again have a conversation with somebody I met um, probably about a year ago, Phyllis Clark. You know, imagine we're, uh, we just got, got into the lobby of a building and we're waiting for this elevator. We both are going to the same floor. Let's call it the seventh floor. And uh, we're standing there and I just say to you, hey, uh, what, what brought you here today? Okay, well, um, interesting question. And I am going to ask you the same question, what, you, what brought you to boards. But I started getting on boards when I was still vice president of finance and administration at the University of Alberta. And it seemed like an interesting way to pursue activities and parts of, of my life that I didn't get a chance to do with work or with family at home. The first board that I was on that I would say was important to be on other than just some things that one volunteers for as you're going through life was the Edmonton Symphony Society board. Uh, symphonies, like most arts organizations, have zero money and endless demands on the way to spend it. So that was kind of a corollary um, to what I was doing in my work, but more interesting because you didn't have to be um, accountable for it. You had to be provide oversight and help people as they made decisions. And so it was my background in administration and managing money and finance that brought me in through that stream. And from then, I had a very strong sponsor in the then president of the University of Alberta, Indira Samarasekra, who when asked, did she know a good person to be on the Bank of Canada board, put my name forward. And when I got on that board, I was hooked. And yeah. now you, how did you get to this point? Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, actually, um, and very rarely people ask me that, uh, but I'm an analytical person by nature. And, and it, it was probably during the course of being involved in takeovers and, and mergers and acquisition activity. And I, I was schooled in valuation and discounted cash flow, all these ways of, you know, oh, what's this company worth? What's this worth? And, and um, I came across, I, I can't even remember how, uh, a situation, a case study where all of the analytics just really went out the window. And really what was fundamental and important was human nature. So I, I probably for the last 20 years or so, I've, I've done a deep dive into starting with negotiation, mediation, uh, and, then, and then formal training and governance. Just the, the way that people make decisions. And I, I find it, it, it crystallizes in a boardroom where people, you know, can, are presented with the same in, exact same information for the most part, or maybe not exactly because there's different perspectives, but just the dynamics that happen in those two or three hours, the exchanges, the, the, the body language, the way people look at each other or, or don't like each other or do like each other. It's to me, it's every board meeting is just a fascinating uh, flake of life as I think Leonard Cohen said. Um, so yeah, that's what brought me uh, to that. But the, the Bank of Canada, that's that's a bit of a leap from the symphony or, or the university 
And I, I think, you know, cause you and I are having a bit of a chat about this the other day. Cause you know, most people think, Oh yeah, they, they all meet and they, they, they know what's going to happen to the economy or whatever. And they set the interest rates, but you know, you were helping me understand better. That's being on the board of the bank of Canada is just really not what you do at all. That's true. So when you look at the Bank of Canada Act, the board itself is not responsible for doing things like setting interest rates. And just a sidebar on that, now um, after the last review of what its mandate should be vis-a-vis interest rates, I think that if you read the business section, you know that it's still, it's been kept in the guardrails of setting the interest rate, but also with regards to what's happening to unemployment, which is like, that's revolutionary to see what's going to happen with that particularly little, particular little sliver of its mandate. But yes, indeed, the board at the Bank of Canada is responsible for the structure of the bank in the sense of um, how well it's running its organization, which everybody on a board knows the main factors that you have to think about. Um, to quote you, it's uh, PNF of the SPF in your, uh, <laughs> your book. So it's the people, the finances, and now the information technology. So it's overseeing, oh, you want to say something, but let me just finish this. It's overseeing the processes and the practices that people have. So it's the governance aspect, but it's on that slice of the bank. The senior committee, the senior committee at the bank, which is the governor, the senior deputy governor and the deputy governors is the body that sets the interest rates. So how you see it at the bank on the board is, it's like an economics lecture and a finance lecture it's insights every board meeting on what is happening with the financial aspects of the economy and the real aspects of the economy. So you get that body of exposure, even though you're not responsible for it at the governance level. So, you know, I, I use the example in my book about Boeing and, and boards stubbing their toe, I guess, to put it in a much more simple English way. How, how do you know, how does the, the board of the Bank of Canada, um, you know, board's now supposed to evaluate whether we're doing a good job or not? How, how does the, when you apply that uh, concept, how, do you, how does the Bank of Canada board say, yeah, we're really knocking it out of the park? Well, given the, the bifurcation of responsibilities, <laughs> it's not about, again, it's not about the economy, the, um, nor about the interest rates, like the real economy, nor the financial economy. It's about how well the bank is functioning as an organization. So, um, I mean, a lot of people think that administration is dull. I think that administration is what makes or breaks any organization because to some extent it also forms the culture of what's happening in an organization. And Boeing, I don't know if you've read the recent book out on Boeing, but in terms of how it changed um, over time because of the culture change and because of the administrative change, that applies to any organization, the same as the bank. So did the bank knock the ball out of the park in the recent recession on the non-governance side that the the board was responsible for? In my opinion, yes. But that's as a Canadian um, 
looking at what the bank did in conjunction with the government during the COVID crisis. It did a, a wonderful job. It is going to be exceptionally interesting to act, to watch not just the Bank of Canada, but the ECB and the Federal Reserve step back from those policy issues. Are you so? You don't get to comment on the board at the board on the policy issues. You are commenting on how well is it doing running itself? How well, so you look at the usual things the board looks at. You've got an internal audit area. You've got a um, an external auditor. You look at what they're saying about what's happening at the bank. You look at the various indications, the dashboards that you get, the publications that are going out, and the feedback that you get from not just the people in the bank who tell you what's going on, but people who tell you how the bank is running externally. So there's lots of ways of measuring it. And I can attest that I think the Bank of Canada is an extremely well-administered, well-run organization. Yeah, I want to cycle uh, back for just a second before we sure. continue yeah. down that road to what you talked about, though, in terms of the psychology of boards. Um, and the, the board at the Bank of Canada is represented across of a, a country, um, appointments from every province plus, an, plus uh, two from Quebec and from uh, Ontario. But it wasn't that, it was the psychology. And it's been interesting to see how economics has changed with behavioral economics and how that is seeped into so many different things now. The importance of psychology it's, and how that influences decisions, culture, interactions, boards, all of those kinds of things. And I think that's been one of the interesting things that's changed about governance is it's no longer just the oversight and questioning. It's the analysis of why people are doing things that they do. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be next next stages of governance is, is because I think, you know, uh, neuroscience is continuing to advance in our, our ability to understand how our brains function. And, and uh, I, I, whenever I, I give a copy of my book to somebody, I actually put it inside the, the cover. If I've got a pen handy, uh, this, uh, the quote from Michelangelo, I'm still learning, which he said at, at age 87, apparently. Well, although maybe that's fake news too. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I was I was going to ask you, like, OK, so that the Bank of Canada operates this way. But, you know, there seems like people have a lot riding on what central banks do, the Federal Reserve. And you mentioned the ECB and, you know, every country's got one. Um, how you know, how does how do they differ? What, what are sort of the extreme sort of outside of like dictatorships where somebody just says, boom, that's what the interest rate is. But but. Are there big differences or is everybody sort of, you know, kind of like McDonald's is sort of makes the same kind of have burger foodie that Burger King does? Are they kind of the same or not? Um, tantalizing question because books have been written about this and one could talk for a long while. The, the most obvious difference in central banks is in North America between the United States, the Federal Reserve Bank, and Canada, the Bank of Canada. So the Federal Reserve Bank, to some extent, reflects the, um, the, the differences 
with how the banking system grew up. Um, and it's not related in the sense that it was a direct line, but the banking system in the States was much more particularized around the country. So the Federal Reserve Board is like an octopus with a center, usually the, the um, uh, Federal Bank of New York is considered the central uh, part of this. And then the various tentacles that go out. There are Federal Reserve Boards around various uh, states and they hire subject or not hire. They are subject matter experts to a larger extent on those boards than the Bank of Canada board, as I said, the administrative board. But they so, so just so I understand that, like, yeah, uh, would that mean like uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of California sort of knows more about high tech because they're closer to Silicon Valley, and this, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank of Iowa knows more about agriculture because they're surrounded by corn and soybeans. Is that kind of what you're what you're saying? Uh, yes, except there is, yes, it is. Okay. So that would be where the subject matter expert vis-a-vis -vis the industry that they are closest, most closely positioned to. But nevertheless, they would also have more expertise in the financial aspects of interest rates, um, borrowing and economic activity than people on the Bank of Canada board are chosen for. So it's a different structure and they are more directly responsible for what happens with interest rates. Although still the government, again, with all of the differences between how governments work in the United States and Canada is responsible for the economy. And the, the interplay between the appointees to the Federal Reserve and how what they owe to the federal government in terms of what goes on is also interesting and different than the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada, this difference between who sets interest rates, who is responsible for the administration is very clear, very clear. And that's not as clear in the United States. Um, there is more so, of a mixture. Yeah, and so now let's let's take a leap across the pond. Because I'm thinking there's, you know, the ECB, uh, there's arguably people around the table that were shooting each other uh, within the last hundred years, the French and the Germans. And, and, and now we've got the Italians and I mean, and their economies are all different, their political situation. How, how, do they, how do they square that circle to come up? Because we personify these heads of the beings, Christine Lagarde or Jerome or, or, or Mark Carnot, like it, it all seems to revolve around one person and whether they're having a good day or a bad day or they're, you know, or they're going to jiggle the knobs this left or right one degree. It, it, I, I'm, I'm taking from what you're saying is, is that's, that's a media kind of incarnation. Um, but to go back to the, to the Europeans, how well, are these I'm guys? I'm expert on the ECB and how the ECB runs. Okay. I think the European Union, the pressures there are huge and it's because of the diversity of the economy. So how the ECB decides what to do for interest rates and which means to some extent one arm of stimulus along with the European Union Parliament must be hugely difficult. But think about it compared to Canada. And let me just say on the Bank of England, of course, responsible for the United Kingdom, 
much tighter in terms of what it can do. Mark Carney uh, came from Canada. Huge change for a colonial person to be appointed <laughs> to head of the Bank of Canada. Or, sorry, pardon, he was head of the Bank of Canada, but appointed to head of the Bank of England. And the rumor was that when Brexit was coming up, there was only one institution of note that had done a what-if Brexit passes, what will we do specifically? And that was the Bank of England under Mark Carney. So high marks to him. Back to the uh, ECB, the EU, compare it to Canada. Think about doing um, monetary policy in Canada um, where you've got Newfoundland, who was doing really well during the oil um, boom there, but now is having tremendous problems as compared to what happens. And now the BC is rolling along quite well, Ontario recovering despite of COVID. So how do you do monetary policy in that kind of structure? Same thing that the ECB faces. But again, I'm talking from general knowledge, not from specific uh, study or evidence about how the ECB and the EU make up their minds on financial and economic policy. You should really interview somebody who is involved in that or a prof on that kind of stuff. It's just interesting to follow in the papers. So, so money seems to, or the concept of currency seems to stick to you because you, you, you've been involved with the mint. And, um, and uh, yes. Right. I went from printing money to pressing money. <laughs> joke. So um, following, you term out on these boards, as everybody knows, and that's a good thing, because I think you get uh, not complacent, but maybe a little too elastic in terms of what you're willing to accept, because you know the people and you know the difficulties. Good to, to term out. Um, and then the opportunity came up to apply uh, in the to the Canadian government to be chair of the Royal Canadian Mint. And I'm eternally grateful that they chose me to do that. Uh, it's the, it's been, it was a natural step because although I was chair of the audit committee at the Bank of Canada, I became chair of the, the Mint board. And the Mint is really unique uh, in lots of ways. So it doesn't do monetary policy for sure, but stamps coins. So extremely involved in what's happening with the use of currency, not just in Canada and around, but around the world, because that's kind of a barometer for what can happen with people's use of uh, hard currency, to call it that. And um, but it's also a manufacturer because of not just the stamping process of coins that we use every day, the circulation coins, but it use it prints, it stamps coins or makes coins for other countries. So it's manufacturing those. It's doing research and development with regards to that. Like we've all seen the colored coins. Canada developed that IP. And then it also refines bullion, which makes it really important in the mining economy at Canada, hmm. because there are not there's two bullion refiners that can refine to the level that we refine. And then, of course, really? it has okay. the Canadian commemorative coins, which turn out to be really interesting because of the history that goes on behind them. And I think our sister institution, the uh, Canada Post, also is concerned with that, with ensuring that we have regard towards Canada's history. So, I, I mean, for, 
I bet you there's people that are listening to this conversation going, yeah, a mint. Uh, they, they got a plant, I think in Winnipeg and, and I'm at how long before that closes down? Um, because I, I'm, whether it's stamps, Phyllis, or whether it's, it, or coins, um, I have less and less and less of them. Uh, I, I mean, I used to buy a roll of stamps once a month and now it, maybe it's once, maybe a year. And I tap my credit card. Uh, I can't remember, you know, going to the bank in an ATM, are, are, is this a dying business that you know, people a hundred years from now go, yeah, there used to be this mint there. Just like people would say, yeah, we go down to the beach and collect shells. Cause that's how we trade. I wish I knew because then we'd be able to do a better job of the foresight aspect of what uh, boards are supposed to be doing. So um, it is a strategic and existential question for not just us, but for every mint in the world and every producer of currency in the world, what is going to happen with regards to the use of hard currency versus cryptocurrency. So um, let me talk a bit about the current situation. We found ourselves before COVID with a decline, not quite double digit, but close to double digit over a five year period every year, the use of coinage was going down. So we were thinking, and the Mint, the administration at the Mint was thinking about what's the next step on this? Where should we be going? Lots of uh, people around the world who produce coins were thinking about the same thing or thinking about it uh, in currency. And Sweden even went to banning currency for a while and going with completely a non-hard currency economy. Oh, so they reversed that because I remember reading that, that they were... Uh, Precisely. Okay. Yeah. Precisely. Is so there the, was the money launderers were having too tough of a time. Actually, usually you don't associate money laundering with them. I, I mean, I mentioned to you the other day, one of my, one of my guilty pleasures is I love watching Judge Judy and I can't believe what percentage of, of the people that appear before Judge Judy, they're in some kind of dispute about a car purchase or their rent or, or a, a security deposit. And they say, how did, you know, like, what did you do? Oh, uh, cash, 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 cash. And I, I'm like, wow. Uh, anyway, it's, um, that's why my money laundering. <laughs> so, so Sweden's off of that, but, but and the know. reason they, the reason that went off is what most people around the world are thinking about these days, vis-a-vis -vis coins and currency. So, um, there are certain groups that are disadvantaged if you don't have a hard currency and those are, um, I don't know if you can say poor people nowadays, but poor people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who can't get credit, who can't get a credit card. So what happens with them if you have no currency? So you either have to make, you have to create a medium where they can participate or you have to have currency. Number two issue is, um, and that means getting a credit card and having all of the things that uh, sit behind that. Credit cards operate because IT operates what if you don't have good and responsible IT coverage? And this is where Canada has got a real issue because we all think um, as people who live in really rich IT coverage areas, 
we think we have problems. Think about what it's like if you live in some place like rural Canada or northern Canada where there isn't reliable and continuous IT coverage. What happens when you go in to use your cryptocurrency and there's no way you can use it? So it's the disadvantaged, the IT issue and the emergency issue. What if things go awry? What if you have, oh, go ahead, you wanted to say something? No, I was gonna, I, I, you know, I, Sometimes I'm a worry ward. I just think, you know, um, somehow or other, my my wealth is is sitting somewhere on a bunch of silicon chips. And, you know, what if somebody with uh, malintent in, in the extreme just said, no, let's just erase everybody's stuff. Uh, see, see what happens. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, some there's more than a few people have you know, some stash somewhere or other so they can go to the store and still, you know, buy dinner. Um, like you made a comment the other day when we were talking, I thought it was fascinating because I hadn't thought about it, that coins, you know, or, or that uh, the laundromats of the world and, and how much of, of, you know, coins in Canada, toonies and loonies uh, are, are out in, in rural areas or, or in, in uh, the North. It's true. And um, when we ship, money to the north and the mint is responsible for the circulation of coins around Canada. It works with the banks and institutions to ensure that that's smooth. But when we ship coins north, it's like you never see them again. Where are they going? Um, so and then the, the aspect about various kinds of machine or coin operated machinery, that was one aspect that uh, the Federal Reserve in New York found out. They didn't have enough coins for people to do things that we would think you we would not think of, uh, you would need coins for apartment buildings, coin operated laundries needed coins laundromats needed coins. So there is that kind of transition that has to happen um, as people move into crypto. Will there be more and more cryptocurrency? Yes, because the banks, the central banks around the world are getting into cryptocurrency, which removes one of the issues that you talked about. Well, it doesn't remove the cyber issue of somebody breaking into a bank's cyber system and erasing everything, but it removes the issue of the who stands behind the cryptocurrency because the central bank would be standing behind it the same way as the central bank um, stands behind paper currency now or polymer currency as it currently stands. So crypto always an issue, an issue that boards are seized with for things that are perhaps important to the as important to the organization as cryptocurrency to the economy, but still different. But it's been interesting reading the um, what's happening at the Olympics with the virtual Juan and are people using it? Well, not a lot of foreigners there now, and apparently people have been trying to use it, but you have to go through a lot of administration to get to be able to use the crypto one. So that's a sign of transition. We are definitely in a transition period on all of this stuff because people are thinking about it, thinking of how, what, it, what the advantages and disadvantages are with cryptocurrency and what it means for various institutions. What does it mean not for the Bank of Canada? What does it mean for every single bank in the world in terms of how they do mediation and what's going to happen with dis? intermediation. So interesting topic. 
front of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, I think what you've enlightened me on is I, it, you, you sort of think of these big things in a macro context and to think about, you know, uh, it being actually quite individual. Uh, I don't have, I need money to go and do my, wash my clothes. Um, I, it's, uh, or I'm way away from, from Wi-Fi signals. So, you know, that's all well and good, but. Uh, in the exchange in times of emergency, the mint actually does coins that are about the size of my little fingernail, which is a pretty small little fingernail. And those are broken down. So got a problem, you can exchange one of these little gold coins, pure gold coins for something during a period. One doesn't like to think about those disasters and emergencies, but um, it is something that is part of that whole what spectrum of issues that people are thinking about who are responsible for currencies. And currency, what it does, it's a medium of exchange. It enables people to do things. So how are we going to enable people, all people, to do all of the things that they want to do in an economic situation, in a trade of goods and services? That's the big economic or the big currency issue. It'll be interesting to see how that gets solved. Yeah, I, I think we take it for granted. Uh, my, my wife introduced me to this book, Sapiens, uh, which I found. And, and, and it really looks at civilization from literally the beginning to, to today and, and past and into the future to some degree. But currency in, is a medium of exchange. Uh, he cites as one of the greatest inventions ever. Because, you know, you don't have to take your chicken over to the neighbor in order to get your hair cut. Uh, and say, <laughs> well, what are you charging today for how many chickens? Are, or how about a rooster and just give me a trim? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it was also cited as one of the reasons that Al Walid, who um, really form, coalesced the Arab uh, um, empire after all of the military ways, military um, incursions, how he coalesced it was he made Arabic the language of exchange and he made money printed in Dama or stamped, I guess, then created in Damascus, the money of exchange. And that's what led to things coalescing um, to create an empire that endured longer. So yeah, money has been not just a, uh, an economic thing, but a sociological thing throughout history. Yeah, I, I think it's when you, the more I've thought about it since, you know, reading that sort of little passage is not that long in Sapiens and, and thinking, you know, when people encountered each other, you know, people from South Asia or meeting Europeans or meeting, you know, people, how many furs for for this, uh, you know, saffron, uh, it, you know, there's there's no marketplace for for thinking through you know, what, what, it, what is the worth of something? So it, it, it's, it's fascinating. So here's, here, I'm, I'm kind of go from the, you know, cause these, these are free flowing conversations. So what's triggering in my head is, you know, when you're at the mint or the bank account, what was, how, who made the call to get rid of a penny? And why does it, <laughs> why, why does it take so long in some countries who might be listening to us to, to get rid of a penny? And then other people say, oh, you know what? We don't need that. Well, well, no, we'll, we'll, you know, when you look at, I, I love it because the first time I went to England, there was a whole bunch of stuff and now it's, it's different. So, and, and certainly 
different. But how does that happen? Like I don't know. I wasn't there. Come on, you're in the Bank of Canada, and you're know. with the Mint. I do know a few things. I do know that it costs more to make a penny than a penny is worth. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And the U.S. in terms of pennies, I mean, I guess what it is, is it's not you just use a penny once, you use it several times, but I don't know. But the question that people have asked that um, is interesting, just a little sliver of interesting is why don't you get rid of the nickel? Nobody uses nickels now. Well, think about not just the nickel, but the quarter. If you get rid of the nickel, how do you get change for a quarter? Because that means <laughs> you have to think about dimes and quarters too. So truly, this is way beyond my ken. I don't know. I only know the anecdote. So that's maybe we both need to read a book about that. Yeah, or write one. I think you got the you got the stories to tell on that better than I do. But I just I, you know again it's. The, the even the denomination of bills, you know, as a kid, I mean, there was, I think they were not halfpenny, but half dollar bills, 50 cent bills. And I remember how I, I wish I would have kept them. I'm sure they're somewhere, maybe at the mint, they've got an archive or, or a museum of, of some um, of those. The Bank of Canada has a museum, a currency museum. And I think what you're talking about were shin plasters. And yes, it would have been good to keep them, but uh, you said you don't know what anything is worth. Well, economics says it's only worth what people are willing to pay for it, whatever that is on the other side. How many, how so, many chickens is that hay penny worth? <laughs> exactly. But I always think the big thing, it's not those things. I mean, how does a third baseman for a baseball team get paid more than the president of the United States? What's what's the value proposition here? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. The, I, there, there's a whole philosophical debate on what's what is value, which I yeah. think is and and values, which I you know that was uh, Mark Carney's uh, book, which is very tedious reading because somebody told me you should buy this; it's really good. And I went, oh my god, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, smart, smart guy. Uh, I so you've been involved with the Symphony, University, Bank of Canada, the Mint, uh, probably a bunch of stuff that we haven't, you know, where, where's Phyllis five years from now? Oh, oh, that's a good question. I really have. That's not why I do this is because it's fascinating. <laughs> so it's interesting question. That. Well, I will turn out with um, the chair position at the, uh, by that time at uh, the Mint I will, I'm on the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, which manages uh, a large amount of money for um, the people who help, who help provide retirement and advantages for Albertans. And that's been an interesting journey. I'm on the Inu Vieliawit Investment Committee, which manages uh, the money for a land settlement. Um, the first land settlement in the Northwest Territories. So of those, I would say I can I can forecast exactly. I will be off the Bank of Canada. I'll, or sorry, I, will, I am off the Bank of Canada. I'll be off the Mint. <laughs> I'll be off AIMCO. Um, I'm not sure about uh, the new Yiluit, yes or no, but at some point, I, rejuvenation and renewal at a board is important. So will I be doing more board work five years from now? I don't know. I would like to keep my finger into something that is, oh, sorry, that's not good board talk. 
I, I want to have my oversight going on, <laughs> um, I would say, on an industry that I don't know. And so I would but have it's to. It's your be, nose, actually. It's it's nose <laughs> in here, though, right? So I, and unfortunately, I have a rather large nose. So. <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm micromanager necessarily. But. Yeah, isn't that one of oh, the yeah. hard lessons that you have to learn when you first get on a board? Uh, you're not responsible for solving the problem and making sure that the solution gets enacted. It. I just think it's so tough when you've been working in an area and when you've been in administration, you've been exposed to lots of areas and you think, I've seen that HR problem, I've seen that IT problem. I know how to solve it, and I'm going to say this is how you should do it. What a tough lesson to learn. You have to step back as the director, and then as a chair, you have to step even further back. And on the little person inside you, the inner voice is saying, you don't get it. This is what you've got to do, and you've got to control yeah. your impulse to say that. So I would say I would like to to be on a board that people are willing to believe that I can contribute because of my administrative and financial experience, but in an industry um, like the Mint was for me that I didn't know about, so I could learn the industry and learn what was important in that industry. I'd like to, by that time, have sponsored two or three strong young people, probably women, to get onto a board and have done work and follow that. And then I'd like to read like every decent book that comes out that's got a good review. I, it's so frustrating when you're in the midst of a good book and then all of a sudden you have to, not frustrating, but you have to set it aside to read something else um, for a board. Not to complain about reading, but for the boards, but it That's is. That's why they invented audiobooks. And by the way, the great chair is available on audiobook at Amazon. But no, I, I shouldn't say that. That'd be advertising. But, but you know, you it, it it's sort of modern society because people do. They'll drive and listen, and or they'll they'll be cooking and listening, or or reading board material and listening to something else at the same time. That's our amped up world, I think, because I know I do it periodically, and I'm not necessarily sure that it. It's uh, a sound way of, of uh, digesting board information and, and reading and thinking because you're, you're obviously diverted. So, you know, let I, me not I, talk, I, so let me not talk about the medium of how you, you read a book or get a book or understand knowledge, but let me talk about your book. I'll do a little push for it too because I thought, <laughs> gee, I, I had flipped through it when it came, uh, when it arrived, and then I thought, hmm, prep for this podcast. I could read the book. That would be a good thing to do. So high marks, Brian. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, first of all, I liked the uh, little things like SPF, strategy, people, finance. And I hadn't thought of putting it that way, but that's a great way to put it. Wait, I'm going to think about why am I talking a lot in the future. So I thought those little hooks that people can use that will help in terms of what's going forward. But I also liked the fact that you had done a review of a lot of work that happened and coalesced it into something that was almost like a handbook. And it's kind of, it's not chair 101, but it's chair 201 or 301, because you get a real insight about what kinds of things are happening. So high marks, as I said, high marks. Uh, well, um, I'm embarrassed, actually, because 
us, but thank you. Um, I, 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 this has been delightful, Phyllis. And, and um, I, I do have support for, and ironically, I probably, I, I don't tend to do this, but uh, Wellington Altus Wealth Advisors uh, are supporters of this and, and net proceeds of these podcasts go to Pathways to Education. But um, I'll give a shout out because we did talk about the Bank of Canada and we did talk about the Mint and and, and uh, I just want to make sure I celebrate some of the people that manage money, including my own, uh, that do a great job. So to, <laughs> to the folks at Wellington Altus and Charlie Spiring, uh, et cetera. Um, but thank you. Uh, I've learned a lot. Actually, I'd like to go back um, and and I am just putting a placeholder in your schedule because, you know, I was about to start asking you, um, but I don't want these podcasts to go too long uh, about your experience in the North and the land settlement and some of the board experiences in that. So um, an upcoming uh, second episode with you would be uh, uh, amazing, I am sure. So Phyllis, thank you very much and appreciate all of your wisdom and your time and your investment in uh, the institutions that help make our country great. So thanks. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is Unboard.